Welcome, friends. This is Eric Wright, the host of the Disco Posse podcast. Today's show is brought to you by my good friends at Veeam Software. Not only are we doing some really slick things around the classic data protection side of the world, I've actually got some really new stuff that's coming up, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll make sure we have links on the website as well. So go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. If you want to find out more about Veeam, how they've created the enterprise data availability suite. Uh, so for your on-prem stuff, virtualization cloud, just general data protection needs, Office 365, you name it, protect all the things. So with that, let's get started. Today, I've got a great show with Dr. Steven Tersini. This is a real cool departure from kind of the classic tech startup folks that, that we've been very proud to be able to share. Dr. Tresini is doing some really interesting stuff in ophthalmology. And for anybody that's had laser correction or thought about laser correction for their eyes, this is going to be a great show both on the technology as well as Dr. Tresini shares his sort of learning journey, how he approaches things. It's just a ton of great lessons on running business, how to learn, and much more. Plus, wicked good stuff. Super smart. With that, enjoy the show. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Tersini. I'm a vision correction surgeon at a practice called Brenton Vision in St. Louis, Missouri. And you are listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Very pleased to be able to welcome Dr. Stephen Tersini today. And for folks that are listening, this is a really cool switch in the kind of the normal audience and the normal discussion topics. I've delved a lot into various angles of, of startups and business and disruption and, and things. And you've got a lot that you are doing that will sound very familiar to that disruptive story, but we're going to talk about ophthalmology. We're going to talk about the idea of light adjustable lens, a, a, a lot of neat stuff. So I've, uh, first, if you want to just talk about your background, and then uh, we're going to get started on kind of what you're tackling in the field and, and how we can change the, the future of vision, hopefully. Yeah, so uh, I'm a vision correction surgeon in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, what that means is so the technical term is a, a refractive surgeon. A refractive surgery is vision correction surgery. So most people, when they think of that, they're thinking or hear that they're thinking, you know, LASIK. Uh, but there are actually a lot of different modalities and ways we can, technologies we can use to correct vision. Um, I got into ophthalmology and vision correction surgery um, initially. So I went to medical school because my dad, as a general surgeon, you know, doing operating on people's guts and stuff. And that's what got me into the, you know, the medical field. I thought I wanted to do what my dad did, uh, you know, helping people out. I saw like the huge impact that he could have on people's lives um, and just, you know, doing a procedure or a surgery and really fixing something for them and improving their quality of life. And I wanted to do that. And so I went to medical school um, and I, in medical school, you know, I liked the surgery aspect of surgery, but the general surgery, when you go through the, these rotations, uh, the general surgery rotation, just I, I found out it wasn't for me, just kind of the lifestyle, the work setting and environment. Um, but I, I kind of happened upon ophthalmology. A friend of mine was finishing his training in ophthalmology. He recommended I try it out. So I did a rotation 
I kind of checked all the boxes of what I was interested in, which was, you know, I, you did surgery to help fix problems for people. Uh, you were doing something that's very kind of objective. You can see the results and see what you were doing. And, and, and it really, a lot of the times it was uh, in, instant gratification for the patients you worked with. Um, and so that's how I got into it. And as I went along my training, the specialty of, of refractive surgery or vision correction surgery just appealed to me the most because it was kind of, it was all of that, but magnified, uh, you know, other parts of ophthalmology, like retina, you're dealing with things that they, they help people a lot. Um, but pretty much everything I do, uh, in terms of procedures, I'm always making somebody's vision better. Um, and I, you know, and the results are, you know, almost always, you know, instant gratification. The person can see the results very quickly. Um, that's kind of what, what drew me to this whole field in general. Um, I, we've kind of been, my family and I have been all over the place uh, for my training. You know, we've been to DC, New Orleans, Minnesota, Buffalo, Spokane, Washington. Um, I have five kids, uh, my wife and I, and that's a really important part of our lives. Um, and that's another reason why I went into ophthalmology because it was a medical field that was, it was easier to have time to spend with your family as well. That's really important for me. But then, um, you know, I joined this practice, uh, Brenton Vision in St. Louis, Missouri, because it was a practice that focused uh, just on vision correction surgery and providing patients with all of the options um, that they that are available for vision correction surgery, not just LASIK or just, you know, one procedure, which is what some, you know, uh, some places will, will offer. And also it did it in a way uh, that focused also on the, the customer, the, the patient's experience, you know, the, the uh, kind of a customer service mentality um, and along with providing the best technology and, and the best treatments for our patients. You, when you bring that up, it, it stood out to me right away, uh, and it's very much a part of you know the practice and and the idea that you know treating the treating patients as family, and yeah. obviously you having a large family yourself, you you get that the empathy of you know the what you can do for somebody, and both before and after. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Is that when you get into, like you talked about the general surgery and stuff, in some areas of, of medical practice, you don't necessarily get to really kind of see the results, nurture people through the, the, the pre-surgery experience, understand and have them have this sort of profound outcome. And beyond that, then quite often it's, you know, they just come in and out, you know, it's uh I've always been amazing. When you said like I stumbled upon ophthalmology, most people like when they think what are what are jobs that I've bumped into, like but when you're in in the medical practice, you obviously a specialty will uh, will kind of stumble upon you, right? It's it's very interesting. I ever I ever uh, you know if you would ask me when I was 22 or whatever what you want to be when you grow up, I would never in a million years have said, "Oh, I want to be an eye doctor." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but I like, you know, what you said about, um, you know, spending, having the, being, having the ability to spend time and get to know your patients. Cause you know, what, that's one thing we really try to focus on is, you know, we're very patient centric all for a patient that comes in for a consultation. I'll spend sometimes, you know, 30 to 45 minutes with the patient talking about them with 
about the, talking with them about their goals uh, for the vision, what's bothering them about their vision, uh, explaining to them, you know, sometimes it's a big change to correct you. Something, you know, a lot of people on the outside will think, oh, you're just correcting my vision, but depending on your age, there are certain limitations and we have to make sure you understand those. And we are very, we believe it's very important to spend as much time with the patient as possible. And we've kind of built and catered our practice around that where we're not trying to rush through seeing, you know, 60 patients a day and just let everybody gets like three minutes with the doctor. But if someone needs 45 minutes to talk about something, we will do that. If somebody only needs five or 10, uh, that's fine too. But we, you know, everybody's needs are different and we want to make sure we are accommodating those needs. And I think that's, that's what, you know, draws a lot of people to our practice is because they hear that, oh, you know, they hear that from other people who've been to see us and they, you know, they know that we care about them and uh, want to do what's best for them. We're getting out. There's a little bit of noise coming off your microphone and just, I got caught a couple of early things and I was just from moving around or, or whatnot. So, um, but anyway, I know it's, you, you really bring up a great point of this, I think this is what what people miss, you know, when you hear people talk about how their their relationship with their family doctor, their GP, you know, would be based on an understanding, like they kind of know generally how they're doing, because quite often there's much more to, you know, it's, so people come to you say, I, I've, I need to fix my vision. And kind of in the same way the old saying goes, you don't sell a drill, you sell a hole in the wall, right? What's the thing, and even more so, you don't sell the hole in the wall, you sell the picture that you, your spouse wants you to hang that would need a hole in the wall and thus need a drill. Really, the, the surgery is, has to always be geared towards what, what life are you giving back to that person? And, and, and like you said, they can very literally see the difference shortly after coming through the practice. So I think that's, that was, it probably felt good early, you know, uh, you know, being able to, to target this. Yeah. Now I, I admittedly, uh, you know, it's funny in, in researching stuff, uh, you know, the one thing that scares the heck out of me <laughs> is the idea of laying with my eye dilated wide open and, and someone performing surgery while I'm awake scares the heck out of me. Uh, so you must have to really have a patience and an ability to keep a person calm. Cause that's gotta be dentistry is one thing where you're like, you know, it, it's a tough one, but eye surgery, I've always had a, a fantastic respect for your ability to do that and have people go through that experience. Yeah, well, so we, so we actually, so for all our procedures, LASIK, lens replacement, lens, you know, lens exchange, uh, even cataract surgeries that we sometimes will do, uh, the, all those surgeries, we don't do it with any, there's no anesthesiologist. So a lot of it is, you know, people can take a Valium to help them be calm. You know, but a lot of it is us talking the patient through the surgery, not explaining to them in detail, like, okay, now I'm going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> kind of telling them, hey, this is what you're going to experience next. Uh, you might feel a little pressure here. If you feel any pain, let me know, because we don't expect that. And just, okay, this is what it's going to look like next. And just really talking them through the whole whole process. And that really, uh, I've, when I first started, you know, operating that way, because uh, in your training, you know, you're at hospitals and you're 
Um, there you have anesthesiologists. Sometimes people are put all the way asleep, or they're very heavily sedated with IV medications. Uh, in our practice, you know, when I first started practicing this way, I was kind of like, I was kind of concerned, like, oh, are people going to be able to do well with this? And I think a lot of it just has to do with talking, you know, first establishing that relationship of trust with the with the patient, and then just uh, talking them calmly through the procedure. And I've been really surprised how well people do with it. And definitely the, if you, again, you think of the outcome that they know they're going to get, I think that's why it's, it's such a, there's a willingness because the period of discomfort and the surgery itself is actually short relatively. Uh, it'll probably feel like forever when you're laying back on that chair, you know, while it's occurring, I can't imagine no matter how comfortable it can be. It's, it's, it can be challenging for a lot of folks. Uh, but just like they know, what's on the other side of it, which is very, I think, encouraging for them to kind of, all right, we can get through this. And, and, and I know it'll, it'll be short. It'll be quick. We'll get through it. You know, nothing worse than my, my, my doctor would say like, Hey, you may feel some, some pressure, which is a nice way of saying, hold on to your hats. This is really going to hurt. There's not, there's nothing we do that, that we, you know, I would, uh, say that somebody should expect to feel you know, pain like that where you say, hold on to your hats. Most, most people afterwards say, oh, that, that was just really weird. Uh, yeah. Usually surprised at how, how easy it was. Well, and definitely this is what's interesting. And, and you talked about the idea that number one, you know, just the experience is, is, can be profound and the effect they're going to have, but also the fact that you are now opening the, the, the gate wider to what options are, which like you said, if somebody goes and they say, hey, I've either got to wear glasses for the rest of my life and keep adjusting them as I go, or I've got to get, you know, and, and LASIK is like kind of called out as, as one of the more common, you know, household names around laser eye surgery and such. But there, time has changed, technologies have, have come along. And so let's talk about other options and, and how those kind of came about. Yeah. So. There are a number of different ways to correct the vision and kind of to, um, there are two, when I talk to patients, the way I explain it, there are two main ways of going about it. I, it's, I don't know, it's and through a podcast, it might be hard to, hard, hard to uh, conceptualize unless you can see my hands, but you can think of your eyes kind of like a camera. Um, you have two lenses on the front, your, the front surface of your eye, your cornea, and then there's an internal lens. And those, those, those two lenses help focus the light on the retina in the back, which is like a, the film of the camera. And so uh, if the light isn't focused correctly on the retina, that's because the two lenses in the front aren't focusing it correctly. Um, and so if we want to correct the vision, we can alter one of those two lenses, basically. We can reshape the cornea, and we have a number of different technologies to do that uh, with a laser. And then inside the eye, we can either add a new lens or replace your, your old lens, usually in the folks who are 45 and up. Um, we can replace that old lens so we can either work on the front lens or the inside lens. Uh, so, the, you know, the couple the technologies we have, the first one I would mention would be LASIK. You know, LASIK is one of the ways to reshape the cornea. LASIK and PRK are similar in that the same laser is used to reshape the cornea. Uh, it's called an eczema laser. Uh, it just it, it removes tissue to reshape that surface of the cornea to change how the light is focused. 
the difference between LASIK and PRK is just LASIK is much quicker healing process uh, and the vision comes back much quicker because there's a, a second laser that, that makes a, a flap on the surface. It acts kind of like a self-sealing bandage. Uh, those have been around for a long time. Uh, LASIK has been approved for over by the FDA for over 20 years now. Um, and it, we've had long-term safety studies that have shown that it's safe and stable long-term. You know, it is good to understand that is is a surgery, is a medical procedure, and there are always risks, but um, it's one of the safest medical procedures there is. The, one of the other technologies is called SMILE. Uh, all of these are acronyms. We love acronyms. And all. <laughs> <laughs> so stands for laser-assisted in situ uh, keratomyelusis, which, of course, I'm sure you understand what we call it, just LASIK. Uh, PRK is photorefractive keratectomy. SMILE uh, is, stands for sm um, small incision lenticule extraction. So it uses a different type of laser that basically creates a con it cuts out a contact lens shaped piece of tissue from inside the kind of the meat of the cornea. Um, and it makes a small opening at the top of the eye where we can go in and remove that contact lens shaped piece of tissue. And again, that helps reshape the cornea. Um, some people call it minimally invasive LASIK, although LASIK is pretty minimally invasive anyway. Uh, it's just one of the other technologies that's um, come about in the, you know, in the past decade or so. Also very safe, very effective long-term. Uh, another technology is called ICL, uh, implantable columnar lens or implantable contact lens. It's basically a lens, uh, contact lens, not shaped exactly like a contact lens, but a, a lens that gets implanted underneath the surface of your eye. Uh, that corrects the prescription from the inside. Um, that's used oftentimes in folks who have very high prescriptions that LASIK wouldn't be safe because it'd be re removing the amount of adjustment that needs to be made, yeah. right? Yeah. Or if folks have a corner, a surface of the eye, or the shape of the eye is not safe for LASIK for other reasons, um, then uh, ICL is a great option for them as well. It gives great quality of vision. Um, and again, uh, very good. Um, uh, you know, great quality of vision and really quick recovery as well. Just, just kind of very similar to LASIK. Uh, the other uh, option we have is called refractive lens exchange. And that's for usually for folks who have started to lose their up close reading vision. Um, so with that, we can, you know, depending on the situation, we can help both correct the distance and give you some of the up close, uh, sometimes all the up, you know, up close that you need. Um, now there are always limitations when you're talking about somebody's vision being corrected to over 45 or so, just because of the natural aging process of the eye. But with that, we're actually replacing uh, that inner lens inside your eye uh, with an implant. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of the technical aspects are very similar to cataract surgery, uh, but with more of a focus on vision correction and giving you the biggest range of vision possible. So those are the main, the main options available out there. And there are lots of different actual lens implant options as well, too. So, yeah, when it's interesting that you, you look at, you know, the course of time that these have been available. And when we think about, you know, obviously the literally like the household name of, of LASIK having been around for a long time, people get familiar with that and, and cataract, of course, people always hear about, you know, uh, cataract surgeries, and, and that's been a long time sort of thing that we've, we've been aware of. Uh, but you get into RLEs, you get into other, other ways to do it. And now technology changing, 
And this is where I wanted to dig in a bit, if you don't mind. I like this idea of, of the, the light adjustable lens, because this was like, when I was, I was following through on looking at what this is doing, this is fantastic from a technical perspective. Uh, and you know, again, looking at through some of the journals and where it had been tested and validated and, and measured against the traditional methods. Uh, and obviously it's been borne out in the proof that it is working. And I think the, the flexibility now is so much greater so if you want to talk about kind of the technology into that and, and where that comes into play in the surgeries you talked about. Yeah, so with the light adjustable lens, it's, it's, it's a technology that allows us to do something we've never been able to do before, which is adjust the power of the lens inside your eye after it's, adjust the, the power of the implant inside your eye once it's already inside. Now you might be, people might be wondering, well, why is that necessary? Uh, well, the reason why it's necessary, so our measurements and our lenses are very accurate, uh, but with refractive lens exchange and with cataract surgery, your body has its own natural healing process. Sometimes a lens will settle even like a half a millimeter up or down inside the eye, um, and that can make it so that your prescription just isn't exactly where we thought it would be. Um, you know, the, most of the time people land where we expect them to be, and they, there's no, we don't need to do any adjustments. But in the past, if we needed to do an adjustment, we'd have to do, you know, the, the lens replacement surgery and then wait a few months and then do a, you know, a LASIK treatment or something like that, something with a laser to, to reshape the cornea to, to correct the little bit of prescription that's left over. Sometimes if it was a big, a big prescription, we could switch out the lens that we try to avoid that if we can. What the light adjustable lens is, is this lens is that the, the surgery itself is exactly the same. The, the, the shape of the lens is the same. The procedure goes exactly the same uh, as it has traditionally gone. Um, the lens is implanted and it stays in your eye. We usually wait at least three or four weeks to let everything heal, let your body kind of make the adjustments it needs to. Um, and then at that three or four week mark or sometimes longer, if you want to just make sure things are stable, we check your prescription, check where the vision's at, and what we can do with a light adjustable lens is we, um, the lens is made up of these molecules, and the mo they're called macromers, and they migrate and they change their position based on how UV light is exposed to them. So the lens is in, your eye, in their eye, and we check their prescription, and if we want to make an adjustment, let's say they're you know, minus a half, or they have half unit of nearsightedness left, um, and we want to make them zero, so they're you know, the best distance vision possible. We'll plug that into this light delivery device. We'll dilate their pupil, and then uh, the light delivery device will tell it what the prescription is and where we want their prescription to be, and it will deliver a beam of UV light to the lens that will uh, activate those macromers in a, whatever pattern it needs to to make them migrate and ch actually change the shape of the lens inside your eye. So it will make it, you know, more prolate, or you know, just change the curvature to change the prescription. It can change nearsightedness, farsightedness, uh, astigmatism, you know, any direction we we want to go, and we can do it up to three times actually. Uh, and so it, it eliminates the need, oftentimes, for a second surgery, like a second LASIK surgery, uh, if someone would need might need that, <clears throat> and it just allows us so more. Um, more ability to refine and get people seeing as best as they can. With the, 
just the fact that it's it's done using this incredible technology power and then like you said because there's a natural healing process that occurs with anything and you know obviously with with eye surgery and measuring you know how many times you know you think over the course of your career did you do a surgery for somebody in sort of traditional means and then four months later let's say i i think i'm actually still a little off you know and and now you have the opportunity to or maybe not months necessarily but like at least you know post-surgery relatively close i could say better but i, I would be nice if i could go a little further right now the it, it was interesting in, in looking at the the way that this is used and the amount of time. Like I said, it's when when you looked at this and and you see this new capability come out, you know what does that do? Because I know you've got a research mind as well, and you've got a background in in that side of of the medical world. <clears throat> when you see something come to you know come to the market or even pre market, you know. How does it make its way from you? This is Dr. Tosini going, holy heck, this is cool. I, I like the potential here to then being able to see this actually play out in, in a patient experience. Yeah. So a lot of it, so a lot of it is talking to folks who have used it. So they're, you know, by the time it hits, it's you know, FDA approved and hits the market, it's gone through multiple FDA clinical trials. You know, I've been involved in clinical trials. I, I know kind of how they work. Um, we have relationships with a lot of the doctors that do these clinical trials. That's one of the nice things about being able to be involved in clinical trials, uh, which is you know where I did my fellowship and where I am now. We are involved in clinical trials as we're able to see all these technologies be you know years in advance before they're available to everybody else, and we can kind of evaluate ourselves like is this do we how legitimate is this how helpful do we think this would be how how will this you know is this better than what we already have? And so being able to talk to the folks who've already used it, maybe in the clinical trials, if we weren't involved in those trials, uh, is really helpful. This communication with those folks, um, asking them, you know, how, because how this can, you know, changes your practice, what kind of changes you need to make, because, you know, with the light adjustable lens, you know, just because we're talking about it, we've had to change some of our clinic flow because, uh, it takes more visits for the patient to come in for those adjustments. The adjustments take more time. And so even after we uh, you know, acquired the technology, we've been in meetings and kind of uh, with folks who've had the technology, but with also have, who have the technology um, and are going through the same kind of growing pains as us and just talking about what those, what, what they've been doing, bouncing ideas off each other. So a lot of it is just communication with, people who uh, have already used it. And then once you have it, just communicating and troubleshooting things with other folks. Uh, and so I, I feel like that's really important and really helped us out a lot. And part of it is also just experience. You, you know, over the years, there are a lot of technologies that come out and sometimes you get a technology and you invest time and money into it. And over time you, re you learn like, oh, this is actually doesn't work as well as I thought it would be. And when you see a new technology, you can sometimes think back to that technology you were you used in the past and said, is this, you can just kind of get a, a better sense over time. Like, yeah, this isn't, I don't think this is going to work out as well as people, some people are saying, and uh, maybe you hold back and watch and wait, uh, not be the earliest adopter just because you get a kind of a, a sense, eh, maybe this won't be as good. 
Um, and so it's, it's a, I think it's a, a balance between communication with other people and also just kind of your gut feeling based on previous experience. Yeah, and luckily we're we're so much more data driven or have the ability to be data driven because of the way that clinical trials work, the way the research process works. I think uh I, I think the power is there and we've leveraged it for the most part. Obviously there is some stuff, you know, thinking of of the world right now, right? Where we're kind of laying a bet that there's, you know, we're going through this COVID-19 challenge and, and people are saying, well, it'll be all good when it's, when we get a vaccine and it takes 18 months to get a vaccine because of the amount of research that's needed. You know, there's, there's a reason why we have to do this because, you know, there is a process, especially if I think ophthalmology, you don't want to, no one wants to be patient one <laughs> you know, of, a, of a new technique, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, we, you know, we, uh, our biggest concern is making sure what we're doing for the, our patients is the safest thing for them. Um, and so, you know, we wouldn't adopt technology that we didn't think was safe and, and proven and, and helpful, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very important just to look at that, that data. And the data always needs to be updated too, even with the, the COVID-19 stuff, they have these models, but as you gain more information, gather new data, you create better models. And so same thing happens with us with, with eye surgery. You know, we have nomograms and models that we base treatments off of, and we are always taking that data and putting it back into our systems and to make our outcomes even better. Like with lens choices for like refractive lens exchange, we take our, we are, we're always, um, Tracking our results, seeing how close to where we expect the, you know, people to be uh, end up, and we plug it into our computers and our machines, and it helps us do an even better job of of predicting, you know, what the patient needs to get to where we uh, where they want to be. So, and I think that's a great example. We talk about, you know, like the model. So you've got so uh, intraocular lens power formulas, right? This idea that here's a, a model in which we know we measure the inputs relative to the the results, you know, what you do leading up to, you know, and and actually measuring the outcomes, and and that's it. It's it's very it's computational, you know. It's the and but those the model gets adjusted as new information comes in. That's the beauty of data-driven models is that the data isn't the only thing that has to change. You know? And as you see the, the outcomes, especially a medical outcome, you can say, all right, we know, you know <laughs> five years, four years, one year, 10 years later, you can actually see the measurements and the results and then feed that back to the formula. Yeah, one of the nice things in you know, ophthalmology, some of these formulas are not just based on our own practice, but some of them, uh, some of the formulas to be, to use the formula, you have to agree to give your, in, your output data back to the people creating the formula. So you're using the, this, you know, the input, the data from thousands of surgeons across the world to help improve those outcomes. So that's, that's really, you know, it's really awesome to be able to harness the power of just all those the, all those numbers to really nail and drill down to where we try to get as precise as possible. And that's interesting. I'd like to explore that because obviously with your father being, you know, uh, having a, a medical background, different area of, of what he's tackling, but just his experience in the field and potentially even prior to him, you, 
I imagine the way that you, you must bring things to him saying, this is like you said, a, a global sort of data set that we can use to drive the way that you, you know, approach your practice and the technologies. How has that gone from generation to generation? Like he's probably experienced some of that, uh, but in the early part of his career, it just probably wasn't an option. You literally leaned on sort of anecdotal guidance from, you know, from the journals and from your peers. And now you literally have a vast amount of your peers and, and data that you can draw on. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things in medicine where over the years they've adjusted and changed because, you know, the old, the reason why people are doing it was because, oh, that's, that's the way that we've always done it. Um, and, you know, there has, there have been a lot of situations where you know, people ask, well, well, why do we really do it this way? And then they did a study and they said, oh, actually, this probably isn't the right way to be doing it. Um, and, it, where people get kind of surprised at what the, the outcomes are, and but it changes clinical practice entirely. Uh, I, th- I think that's important to always be questioning, well, why, why am I doing it this way? And this applies to, to everything, you know, not just medicine, but why are we doing it this way? Is it just because we've all be, always been doing it? You know, are there better ways? Should we be looking at the data and analyzing, you know, the data differently or, you know, what's, you know, really seeing why you're doing something a certain way. And a lot of times it takes uh, being around people who are new to the field to, to, to do that uh, in training, you know, when you're just learning, you know, I remember in, when I was in residency, we do stuff a certain way and I'd ask my attending, like, why, why do we do that? It seems like we should do this this way instead of that way. And they say, like, I, that's just the way I've always done it. <laughs> it, it makes it makes the it makes you think if you you know having people younger people around you who are in the early stages of their career I think helps promote uh, that thinking process so you don't get stuck in this oh this is the way I've always done it because you're always being questioned like well why am I doing it this way are there better ways to do it well let's actually think about this and and think you know make sure this is the best way to get this done and when you think of a lot of that stuff, sort of introducing the Socratic process of like just you know questioning and going through these and to get to like we may arrive at the same outcome, but like you said, it's still good to revisit. Is this still the right way? And and what are the other? What has changed of the inputs that could derive a different output? Um, when you talked before about also the technology not just affecting that specific situation, but now the flow of your practice. How much of how much of that comes into your early education? I imagine that stuff that obviously in, in medical school, there's foundations that you're learning, but when you actually get out to, to build your own practice or work with other doctors in a practice, do they teach the business of operating a medical practice in, in medical school? <laughs> not 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 at all. Actually <laughs> some in some residency training programs, some people might get some exposure to that, but uh, you're not really given any uh, training for that at all. And I think that's one reason why a lot of doctors coming out of training feel hesitant to either start their own practice or join like a private group. And more and more people are joining just health systems and, and hospital systems because they just feel intimidated by that. It, with me, I, I kind of knew I wanted to be in the private field and not work for a big hospital system. Um, and so in, I, sought after kind of fellowship training that would not only give me 
you know, more of the, of the medical aspect and surgery aspect and experience with that, but also, um, you know, the practical applications of how to run a, a clinic well, how to run a clinic that utilizes these technologies, that adopts new technologies, that provides a great customer experience. Um, and I, you know, it, my fellowship at uh, the Chu Vision Institute in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, um, that's kind of where I got my feet wet with that is we got, uh, I got a lot of experience with, you know, they would change the way clinic was run four or five times a year. Um, they'd always be making adjustments to um, the patient flow, uh, improving the patient experience, and we'd adopt new technologies. They, you know, changing how we're talking to patients about this or that. And there's just always, you're always self-evaluating and really, again, going back to what's the best way to do this? Uh, are we doing it the best way? Let's tweak this and see if it's better. And oh no, that doesn't work as well. Let's try it this way. And just always, you're always changing. I think a lot of practices just get stuck and okay, we're just doing this the same way. All We've been doing it for 20 years and let's just keep doing it. Um, Whereas, you know, you're always, you're going to get better outcomes and a better experience for everybody, the doctor and the patient, if you're always striving to uh, just improve, you know, seeing where you can improve. It sounds like continuous optimization was, is part of your DNA. You know, what, what, what in your past kind of led you to thinking that way or, or, or behaving that way? Uh, I'm not, I don't know. There's this. I think one of the things might, might have been me having a family. Uh, you know, I have five, my wife and I, have, we have five kids. And so that put, puts a huge constraint on my time. And so in medical school, you know, to medical school is a very time-consuming uh, process. Residency as well. In residency, it's even busier than medical school. You're working and you have to, you know, study more in your specific field. And so I was always evaluating because I, I wanted to not, you know, shirk my responsibilities as a husband and a father. Um, and I wanted to make sure I spent time with my kids and provided them with the, provide them with the experience that they, that they need to have and kind of the father figure they need to have and also help support my wife and not leave her hanging, even though the most spouses of, of medical residents, sometimes they can feel like they're probably a single parent. But I tried to, I, I wanted to limit that as much as possible for her. And so for me, it, it boiled down to, just looking at how I studied um, and how I was working at, at work and just trying to optimize and think, you know, how I was doing things there, like how I can, how I can, can I optimize my time here? So I'm basically spending as, as little time as possible studying so I can go and play with my kids or how can I get these tests done in the clinic uh, as efficiently as possible so that I, I don't know how to get home at 8:30 at night and, after my kids go to bed. I think that was one of the catalysts that made me start thinking about that. And then as, I think just in general, I'm always, I've always been someone who just in my mind, even I, I kind of overthink things, even the conversations with people afterwards. I'm like, ah, that was a stupid thing I said. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, kind of very self-critical and I, that's turned in a positive sense into me thinking about, you know, how, how can I, I be improving the things that I'm, uh, I'm doing, how can I say things better? Um, you know, just things, in, things like that in general. Well, and I think that's really good. And we talk about it as, we call it critical thinking, but it's actually not critical in that. Like people hear critical, they're like, oh, it's an insult. Like no critical is in, is there a better way that we could have achieved this or achieved a better result from what we just did? And 
I'll even have a like a, a an event that I'll I'll do or a gathering or a, or in a meeting or or you know anything at all. And at the end, the first thing I do immediately after said, okay, now what what could we have done better? Because while it's fresh in your mind, you have to approach like, all right, as positive as this experience was, is there anything we missed? You know, and kind of capturing that and and it's been able to it becomes pervasive in everything that I do because the moment that I feel like everything was great and it's all thumbs up, I'd like, hang on a second. It's nothing's perfect. You know, is there anything we could have done better? And I just feel it's good. And, and like you said, every once in a while, I find myself overthinking like, Oh, just there's eight things I could have done better. And you kind of get wrapped up in that. And it's kind of hard to pull yourself out of that sometimes. Yeah. I think another thing, and I just, this just popped back into my head. Um, it, for my undergrad degree, was kind of not a traditional degree you'd get before going to medical school. I, I got a degree in, in classics, um, which is basically, you know, people, most people don't know what that is. When you say classics, they're like, oh, did you study music? It's what uh, you basically learn Greek and Latin and then read a bunch of stuff in Greek and Latin and analyze it and study it. It's, you know, um, and a lot of people will kind of, kind of dog the humanities you're like oh you're a humanities major how's that useful but i think it at least my major at least we're very is very focused on critical thinking uh you're analyzing these texts and analyzing different interpretations of the text and say well why does it why is this interpreted this way i think based on the grammar this is you know should be this way and you know practical applications of of learning greek and latin are very limited i guess it kind of helped in medical school learning medical terms but not enough to make it you know so, something i'd recommend to other people for that reason but i think my undergraduate experience of, of going through you know classical studies uh was very it kind of helped point me in that direction too just with a focus on critical thinking um and building and honing those those uh aspects and attributes of that and the the time management thing is is impressive because of the the amount of commitment you have just to your learning process like you said especially in residency you're literally doing two full-time things like you're you are working and you are still schooling learning yeah. at an incredible pace it, having just come out of an incredible pace of learning for for many years it, it, when you when you come out of that, you complete residency. Do you feel like you like a like a marathoner stumbling across the finish line with his hands in the air? Is there is there a respite at all? Is there a, or how does that that flow into the next phase? I think it's. Um, I think it all depends on on the person and what kind of situation you're going into next. You know, I, after my residency, I did a fellowship. Um, and you know, fellowship, it wasn't as much outside reading uh, like you would do in, in, resi in residency. But again, you're taking on this a whole new aspect of learning the, the aspects of, of running a practice and doing all those things. And so, yeah, at, at the end of your training, there is like a, a sigh of relief, like, oh, that's done. But then it just kind of kicks back up into something else. When you go ahead and get into practice, you're like, oh, I'm on my own now. And there's a whole nother level of stress where you're 
now these patients are 100% your responsibility. There's no one behind your back where you can say, yeah, you take over. Um, and so there's that, I just, it just, it's definitely better being out of a training. I, I, it's not like I would prefer <laughs> to be uh, in a training program anymore. I love uh, the, the independence, but again, it's just, it's kind of, if you're always challenging yourself and trying to be better, there's, there's not always a, it's not like there's a point where like, okay, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think if, you know, you do feel that, uh, I'm, you can say, oh, I'm done with this, but there's always something new to tackle ahead of you uh, as long as you're you know, trying to become better at least. Well, and I think that's also the one of the more common myths with anybody is even you think of like getting to retirement as if you just like, all right, they hand you your gold watch, you slap it on, you have a big party, you, you collect your cards, you put it in a file box, you take it home and, and that's it from that day forward, you're sitting on the couch, but that's actually not the case. There is no finish line to life. You know, you effectively just, even more so, it's, it can be dangerous if you have uh, a pace at which you're going at and then it suddenly changes you're psychologically not prepared for this sudden shift so i mean with medical schooling and obviously the pressures that you feel with the patient experience and the responsibility you have do you think does that obviously come into play and in why they have to be so kind of aggressive on the amount of of schooling the amount of pressure you feel during that process so that when you are alone in practice that it's it's built in like you are psychologically prepared for that i think i think that's definitely a part of it you know there years ago residency residency training in general was much more uh difficult in terms because you know now there are a lot more rules that make it more life friendly even though it's still not the most life friendly thing uh out there you know it used to be there were unlimited workouts like for my dad uh he would work like 113 hours a week 100 and <laughs> he told my uncle that one time he's like well that's like most of the hours of the week my dad thought like yeah I <laughs> the mentality then was like well we gotta work you so that you know because you know a patient needs to be you know when you are seeing a patient in the middle of the night you need to have the stamina to be able to help them out and get them through and save them, which uh, I definitely think there's a, an aspect of that that you need to develop just kind of a stamina. Uh, I think it was a little maybe too overboard uh, back in the, in the good old days. But yeah, definitely that's an, one aspect of medical training that I think is, is necessary. You know, you want to have the experience and it's, it's a lit, you know, residencies for ophthalmology is four years. You want to make sure in those four years you see as much as possible. See, because there are a lot of weird things that can happen to people's eyes. Um, and you want to be able to recognize and recognize what the problem is and know how to deal with it. Um, and if you're just kind of working eight-hour days and seeing a few patients and not really working hard and spending and putting, putting the hours and putting in the time, you're not going to get the experience you need for when you see that patient five years down the road and you're like, I don't know what's going on. I can't help you. Um, and so it's definitely helps prepare you and it's, it's a necessary part of, of training and it does help kind of, um, you know, build a new, also that stamina and preparedness to work, you know, 
when you need to work long hours, help that patient that comes in at the end of the clinic day where you're psych, you know, mentally ready to be done, or you can switch it back on and say, okay, well, this patient needs me. Uh, let's go do this. Um, so it, it, it does give you kind of that, uh, the training does help train you to be able to do that, I think. When there's an interesting sort of dichotomy in the types of mental work that you have to do, there's obviously the incredible deep work when you think of like research and, and study and, and that part of it is, and then there's the, the sort of reactive and immediate things that are, you know, this is very, you know, you, you don't have a choice in what's going on. You, you just, you will react automatically in certain ways and you have to be able to like, so that somebody comes to you and you're exhausted, you may have spent the day or, or hours or even weeks, you know, in this sort of deep work sort of mindset. And now all of a sudden something's happened and you have to very quickly sort of context switch to, okay, we're in sort of triage mode and, and, and how do we do that? So, and it's funny, we, you know, in tech, we, we always, we use the same phrases that anyone would use in, in medical. We always talk about triaging the process. It's, it's irony that, you know, the, the phrases play out in, in many industries probably. Yeah. In, 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 you know, in eye, sur- you know, in eye surgery and doing eye procedures, you have to not, it's almost like being, you know, I, I really like football, right? like football analogies, like a quarterback. If you, if he, you go out and throw an interception, you can't let that affect the rest of your game or else you're going to tank and lose. Uh, in eye surgery, you know, Complications are rare, but they do happen. If you have a surgery that doesn't, if something pops up that just wasn't expected, maybe it wasn't even your fault, but just, you know, something weird happened and the surgery takes longer and you're, you know, it's not, doesn't have the outcome right away that you want. You can't let that, you can't let that affect you because you have 10 other patients right after this one who needs your A game and needs you to go into their, to the, the room with them and still exude confidence and and say hey i'm your doctor uh i think this today is going to go great you're gonna you're gonna love your vision after this you can't go in there and be like oh man that last surgery was tough yeah i'm just kind of <laughs> up. and let's <laughs> you have to go just yep that happened okay i'm gonna put it behind me now it doesn't affect how the rest of the day is gonna go and just uh keep on moving on with uh with the day as usual and, and not let it, uh, not let it affect you. Well, there's an interesting personality that has to be both developed and some of it has to be inborn is the ability to have potentially even a tragic thing occur and then to take yourself out of that feeling. And it's this real sort of separation from, you know, where, one part of your brain would just pull you into this dark place and you have to be able to just, you, you have to be able to separate yourself from that moment and that feeling, like you said, and, and shift the thinking and shift your mood and shift your approach. And it's, it is psychological and physiological, the effect that those things can have like those. I imagine at some point in your career, you've, you're bound to have had that thing where it was probably tough to go through a moment. Obviously I won't ask you to, go deeply into the discussion of it, but you know, when did you, when did you get that sort of first feeling and, and how did you get through that? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I feel like 
you know, I, I've always been someone who who deals with um, who deals with uh, you know a crisis calmly. Um, just kind of like, okay, this is crazy, but let's just think through, you know, what needs to go on. I've, I've never been someone who goes into panic mode very easily. Um, but there's definitely, there's definitely something I had to learn and train myself to do uh, throughout, you know, throughout the years of my training. And it's something you, something you have to recognize is important. Um, and I think part of it came from seeing uh, other people, other surgeons, and how they reacted to situations, and saying, "Oh wow, I really that that was really awesome what what she did," uh, and seeing someone else, I'm like, "Oh man, I I don't want to react like that." Uh, yeah. you know, pulling pulling from the experience of other people and and recognizing good patterns and bad patterns, and and kind of trying to take those and acquire them and make them part of yourself, um, and also going back to self reflection and just always thinking about well, what's this other person uh, that I'm interacting with experiencing? Am I making the experience for them the way that it needs to be? And you know, am, I, am, I, am I making them more calm or less calm? Am I freaking them out by the way that I'm acting and talking? And it's just been, a, I don't know if there's been one moment where I'm like, oh, this, this was the turning point. It's just always been a slow progression of, of recognition of more and more things from both personal experience and then seeing other people, uh, you know, that I've been in training with as well. And it's interesting, like you said, the the idea of dealing with with crisis calmly, and and it is a very, it's a thing that has to be, you know, a certain amount of it is inborn, you know, and and gotten through some lived experience. But and then the greater development of that, and you hear about like pilots and you know many stories that they talk about the idea. Of, I forget which. There's a specific flight where that was, we, they'd lost like three or four engines and there was another pilot in the plane, walked up and said, I'm a pilot, here's my credentials, what can I do? Where do you need me? And they said, okay, take the chair. And it was, they said the, the communication was almost guttural and it was like immediate. There was no going through, you know, they were going through internal checklists because they knew that's how they had to approach it. And the communications were quiet, quick, immediate. And it's, that was a learned behavior, but you have to, you have to psychologically be able to deal with that. And yeah. some of it is just, it's just born, you know, and, and it's a, an interesting thing to see. I, my, my mentor and fellowship, uh, he, he mentioned something to me one time. He's talking about um, just the, the quality of a surgeon. Uh, and, you know, some people say, like, I can do a, you know, this type of surgery in this amount of time. I'm super fast. And he was a very, very fast surgeon, very good. I think one of the best I've ever seen. Uh, but he said, you know, I, he kind of mentioned that he judges sometimes people's surgical ability, not on just how quickly and smoothly they can do a case, but how well they can handle uh, this situation when it doesn't go well. If someone who can do the best, uh, like vitrectomy is the type of procedure we do um, in certain types of complications. And kind of the, he says, I would want to go to the person who can do the best vitrectomy, uh, who can basically handle a crisis uh, better than anyone else. Uh, because that's really where you kind of prove your mettle or, you know, you can have a, a 
million cases go perfectly, but the one that doesn't go as well as you want it to, how well do you handle that? And does the person still come out great afterwards? Um, Absolutely. It's really the test of, 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 I guess, how good you are. <laughs> it, the, the other thing as well is because nothing is static in in your world uh, at least i should hope it's not right i I'd, you know you, there's continuous development that that continuous optimization comes in in seeking you know what's next how much of your day in your sort of you know week perhaps is is spent just purely in being prepared for for what could be done better and what's coming next yeah so i'm i'm always trying to you know with patients and surgery, always trying to anticipate, as a surgeon in general, you always try to anticipate potential issues or problems uh, to prevent them, uh, or so you can like, okay, if this this has a higher chance of happening in this situation, let's make sure we're ready for it. And so uh, I don't know if there's a specific you know, amount of time. I think the mentality that you try to learn and get ingrained in you in your training is to be always thinking ahead, be always thinking about, okay, what, what are the possible problems? How are we going to be dealing with this? When somebody calls in after hours and with a concern or a, you know, an issue with their vision, you're always in your head thinking, okay, what's the worst thing that this could be? And kind of triaging that. Uh, and then in, in terms of, you know, just the clinic flow and patient flow, you're always, you're just always thinking, okay, is this the best way to be doing this? I don't, I don't think there's, there's not a specific amount of time that I set out to, to think about those things. I just, I think it's something that's just ingrained in, in how I, how I do things and, and you're just always analyzing and thinking about what you're doing, at least in the background. Um, even like how I'm explaining and teaching things to patients about what to expect or how things work. It's just something that's always running in the background of how to make this better, how to do this better. And then you, there are times where you're meeting with your team and saying, okay, you actually sit down and we try to do that, you know, pretty regularly. How can we make the flow of the surgery go better? How can we make it so people aren't waiting here as long? Um, you know, the cleaning process, how are we getting the rooms ready quickly for the next patient? Um, we're always talking, you know, oh, how are you doing this? Oh, let's try to do it this way. Um, you know, that, so we try to meet, you know, every week or so to, to go over that as well. But I think it it has to, and it, the more people that are thinking about that and having that kind of in the running in the back of their minds, the better. Because if you just have people just doing, just coming to work, clocking in, and not thinking about those things, not kind of taking ownership of that whole process, um, it can slow it down more. Whereas if you have everybody thinking, okay, what's what can we do to make the patient experience better? What can we do to make you know surgeries go smoother? What can we do to improve all these things and you know, everybody's thinking about it. Everybody's cognizant of the of the issues and bringing ideas to the, to the forefront and and bringing up issues that maybe you weren't even thinking about because you it wasn't kind of in your realm of the things you were dealing with. Um, I think trying to engender that kind of uh, mentality in your the group that you're working with uh, is very helpful. The other thing is because you. You very much, you can sense that your the the empathy for the patient experience, your the experience of your peers, that's very strong in the way you describe everything. So, what would be, what would be advice that you would maybe give to 
uh, an unnerved patient, somebody who's a nervous patient who's heading into a some procedure, something, you know, and yeah. what are the things that they can ask their doctor or, or asks, you know, f- to make sure that they can get to a, a, a place of ease or, or know that they've got confidence in what they're about to experience? I think a lot of fear comes from the fear of the unknown. And so I think asking, you know, I always tell people exactly what they're going to experience. So there aren't any surprises, you know, in a medical procedure, you don't want there to be a surprise to me like, Oh, I don't, I wasn't expecting that. Is that, is that okay? Is that, is that normal? Is that right? Um, and I think the more you're able to get that communication and just ask if, if you're a patient, ask the doctor, what's the procedure going to be like? What can I expect? And what can I expect afterwards? What's the healing process going to be like? What's um, you know, am I going to see the results right away? What, what's basically just communicating what to expect I, I love it when afterwards we have a patient who had a procedure like PRK. PRK is the one that has, it's the most uncomfortable healing wise. Um, it's kind of like your eyes healing from a scratch. And we try to go over with them in depth. This okay, your vision is not going to be great for a couple of weeks. You're going to be in pain for this amount of days. On this day, you'll feel like your vision is better and the pain will be getting better, but then it's going to get worse. And I love when someone comes up to, up to us afterwards and say, man, it was, it was, everything happened exactly like you said. <laughs> and I, and it just was so reassuring to me because they're, you're able to, they're able to see like, oh yeah, my doctor said this is going to, this is going to be like this. And then they, that every little step like that builds that trust and like, okay, even though my vision is not where it's going to be right now, they told me like in a month or two, it'll be a lot better. All the things they've told me up to now have borne out to be true. I, I, uh, I can, I, I trust him on this. And so I think every little thing uh, kind of adds up to building that, that trust. You have to have a level of trust with your doctor. If you, if you don't, um, I would say maybe find a different doctor if you don't trust him. That's a big thing in, in, uh, in medical care. And um, we yeah, are just communication, asking about what's, what's, what to expect and what to expect with the he- healing process. And then, um, those are those are the things I would recommend to, to somebody, you know, who's who's might be extra nervous. I think a lot of times asking, you know, what are all the worst things that could happen? That some people come people some people will come and ask us those things, and I'm happy to share with them the list of possible complications and the worst things that could happen. Um, I don't know if that always helps calm people down. It might for some some people, but I just, I think just that having that good level of communication with your with your doctor is the most important thing yeah i think it it, it bears out the the same powerful you know, fruit in life uh that you know transparency and communication in the right sense you know it's there's a lot of sort of thoughts of this idea of like radical transparency sometimes you can radical candor and radical transparency maybe a little bit hard-edged you can be open and you can be communicative and some stuff maybe we, let's let's you know soften the edges a little bit as as we share that and 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 occasionally like i was just thinking that what you described there like somebody comes in and says all right doc tell me everything that's gonna that could potentially go wrong you know when am i gonna get cancer of the ankle because i got cataract surgery like they they may be looking through every worst case scenario and and i don't know that that person could ever be calmed other than the fact that you share 
all right, well, here's, here's the potential complications. While rare, this could occur. While extremely rare, this could occur. You know, they may still be a bit of a nervous Nelly going into that procedure, but at least they know they're, you're, the honesty that you share is, yeah. is that, what you said, it's, it's called the doctor-patient relationship for a reason. It's, it is truly a bi-directional relationship that you have to build and develop. And especially when it's perhaps an emergent situation, you, you're meeting that doctor for the first time and you are about to head into uh, a, a, an urgent or emergent procedure. You know, you have to be prepared to develop that relationship rather quickly. Yeah. When you, you look at, you know, the, the experience of your kids, it's funny, my favorite book that at POS asked, like, what's a great thing when you're having kids? I have four kids. So I, I kind of know the, you know, I've been through a lot of the things and I get two things that I say. Number one, I said, they say, how about that book? Like what to expect when you're expecting? I said, great book, except it should be what, what to expect when you're expecting everything to go wrong. Cause it is literally the, the Bible of things that can go terrifyingly bad. Good. If you like the awareness. And I said, but the other thing is advice is the best advice is one that you take in and then you set aside for your own lived experience and, and be prepared for that. When you deal with patients, I guess there's probably, that's also a similar thing that you, you know, you're, you think about how your kids come to you with a question and that probably makes you a great father <laughs> and a great husband because you've, you are prepared to listen and prepared to help somebody through an experience. Much of that really kind of played into your, your fathering approach. Yeah. So, you know, you, I think it's important yet to, as a husband and a father to, in, in, in every relationship, but especially in family relationships to always, you know, again, uh, always be self-evaluating how you're, responding to people how you're talking to people am i being too short with my wife because i'm you know stressed about something else and recognizing that and saying okay i need to do better at that am i you know when my kids come and ask me something am i just brushing them off and say oh it's you know, whatever i'll ask me later or am i um you know giving them the time that they need um you know there's, there's the the uh, saying that love is spelled T-I-M-E, you know, with, with, with having kids and a family and, and, and all of those relationships, I think the thing that's helped me the most is again, having that, uh, that kind of always be uh, self-evaluating and trying to be better, trying to always, you know, think about how, how can I be a better dad? How can I be a better husband? How can I help my wife more? How can I, you know, stop wasting time so I don't, you know, have more time over here to do this with my kids? Um, and, you know, how, how well am I teaching them this? Am I, you know, living up to the expectations I set myself to teach them to be like this? Or am I being a bad example for them? And um, I think that's the most, the most important thing is just, always try, you know always self evaluating and always trying to do something better and one thing i i want to touch on i hate this to be kind of the the closing statement really but is the the preparedness for giving 
difficult news, right? You, you're in a particular situation where there may not necessarily, there's a, there's a known difficult outcome. Yeah. And, you know, how, how do you approach that? And, and what's your advice for folks, even in family situations where just like, you know, sometimes there are moments where, you know, it's going to be difficult and it's going to be tough. It's going to, but what do we do about that? Right. How do you, how do you approach that situation? So with, with patients, you know, giving, giving bad news, you know, it's always tough, whether it's just a complication and the end result's going to be the same, or if they have an eye condition where you feel like, yeah, this, there's a treatment for this, but uh, your vision might not ever come back to what it used to be. I think, number one, showing compassion, but also be, you know, not acting scared yourself, um, being kind of trying to be uh, kind of a rock for that person and not letting your uncertainties or fears show through and project on, you know, onto them, but project towards them to, cause they, you know, they need someone, you know, this could be a scary or fearful time for them and they need to see that, you know, you're confident and, uh, you're not fearful where you, you just can be someone that they can look towards for kind of to be that, that rock, even if the, situation isn't one where you think is going to have a fantastic outcome if somebody has a really bad retinal detachment or they have um, diabetes that's really wrecked their retina or something um, just being honest with them being compassionate um, ex ex clearly explaining what the situation is i think that where where the patient doctor relationship breaks down the most is just when there's not enough communication where there's some issue with the patient's vision and the doctor said doctor knows what's going on but he doesn't really explain to the patient very well and the patient leaves just being kind of confused and well, well he said to go see this specialist but i don't really know why and i still don't really know what's wrong and and their vision gets worse and then they think back well maybe that first doctor didn't treat me correctly I think educating the patients, if, if it's a bad situation, spending as much time as they need with them um, and it is helping them know that you care about them and, and you uh, have their best interests in, in, at, at heart and you want the best for them and you're going to help them get, you know, get there, whatever that best situation is, you're going to be there to try to get them to that, that, the best place for them. Yeah, so it's funny and that same thing. I, I, when people ask me, you know, like, how, what's what's parenting like? I said, the idea parenting through crisis is is the ability to explain to your kids that everything's going to be okay when you're not sure that it's going to be. Yeah. It's because <laughs> sometimes that's really all they just need to know. You know that they can rely on you that you're gonna you're gonna eat some of the the difficulty for them in a way. Yeah, I think that. That you said it better than I did. No, they know that you. They can rely on you, and you know, making helping them feel that in whatever way uh, you're able to. Well, this has been been really great. We've covered a lot of ground, and and probably in areas where you're like, I'm not sure what to expect of this. <laughs> so I hope this has been enjoyable. I this is a great conversation and good for folks. Um, definitely for people that are looking about what their options are for vision, for vision correction. Um, you know, what's, if you don't mind sharing how folks can get a hold of you, Dr. Tresini, and, uh, you know, because you've, 
uh, I would encourage folks, even if they can't go directly to you, uh, at least listen to you and, and read what you've, what you've done. You've, you've really brought a lot to this conversation. So our website uh, for practice is brentonvision.com, B-R-I-N-T-O-N, vision.com. Uh, you can email, uh, just, you can call us, you can email us, you can email me at S, uh, my first initial, Tersini, T-E-R-S-I-G-N-I, at brentonvision.com. I don't have much of a social media presence, I guess. Uh, if you wanted to, like on Twitter, I'm Stephen dash, under, you know, underscore, Stephen underscore Tersini. Uh, I guess you can shoot me a message on there. I might see it so at some point. <laughs> yeah. as, a, as somebody with five kids and an active practice, I would hope that you're not on social media because of the little sort of confetti-sized amounts of time that would be burned up by, by doing that. Uh, I can't imagine how you could fit it in your day. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure to, to learn about this and, and people can take a, a lot away from this of they, how they can approach their everyday, whether it's family, work, and, and such. These are, are good lessons and uh, proof that humanities degree does not go to waste. You know, it's uh, one of the greater myths, uh, greater than those that you studied, is that, uh, you know, it's school prepares you for what you're going to do, not necessarily, or how you're going to do it, not necessarily what you're going to do. And I think that's uh, critical thinking, uh, compassion, empathy, continuously optimizing and, and, and looking for opportunities in ourselves. Uh, that's it. Dr. Steven Tersini, thank you very much. It's been great. And uh, again, for folks that want to hear other great conversations like this, please do rate us if you can. Uh, we always appreciate that. We are uh, happy to hear more. And if you want to hear more from, from great folks, of course, you can reach me on email. We've got a contact form on the website. And with that, Dr. Tersini, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on.